Shmotim, everyone. So we're finishing up tonight a discussion that we've been having the last couple of weeks, a particular way of looking at our formal sitting practice and more generally our daily life practice, sort of breaking down what we mean by mindfulness practice. And we'll begin possibly tonight, we'll see, um, discussing chapter 17. We've been following, if you haven't been part of the group for a while, we've been following Jack Hornfield's book for over a year now, The Wise Heart, from chapter 17, which is the chapter on intention. And uh, of course, intention really fits into meditation practice. And in a way, it can seem effortful, you know, just getting yourself to your meditation chair or cushion, bringing your attention to the present moment, returning. It seems like there's a lot to do, but actually the work of meditation is really about intention in the mind. But initially, we don't believe it. We think it's much, much more muscular, you know, what we're doing. So it almost feels like meditation is a physical activity, like staying still. And it's actually like we need to train ourselves physically to be able to meditate, to sit, and to stay still. And then there's even a kind of, you know, muscular mental activity too, like keeping the attention on the breath or with the chosen meditation object, defeating the defilements that come up. So practice definitely has this sense of needing muscular activity or volitional activity. But so much of what gets uncovered over the years of practice is that it's really about understanding intention. And in a way, understanding the power of mental intention, the intention in our minds, understanding intention is what actually transforms intention. So we'll be talking about that the next few weeks. But let's just, let me remind folks um, what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and then I'll see if there are any questions before we move on uh, about practice. So, like I've just mentioned, practice is all about working with intention, and there are four ways you can think about it. Like the first and primary intention in practice, you can think about this in terms of just what it takes to get yourself to common ground on a Wednesday night, or get yourself to your meditation cushion or chair at home. We have to have some intuition, some intention, that it's okay to drop our thoughts about things. So, and that, of course, this is gonna happen initially when we start our set, but then, of course, it's gonna have to happen over and over again every time we get caught back up in the world of this and that, good and bad, what I want, what I don't want, what I think about you, And so part of the way, and this is the most obvious part of meditation and daily life practice, is our intuition, our our wisdom has a sense that in this moment there's a choice. The choice to continue to think in terms of good and bad, me and you, this and that, you know, using nouns in the mind. My life, my future, my past, your past, your future, your life. So that's one choice to continue, in a sense, in that world. And then the other choice 
is to abandon that world temporarily. We're not saying goodbye forever, but temporarily learning to drop into what we refer to as the present moment. So we're dropping the concepts, or at least we're dropping our identification with the concepts, the thoughts. And usually to do that, we give ourselves something to pay attention to because it's not easy. There's such a strong addiction to thinking, basically narrating our lives to ourselves, that it's not easy just to drop, drop it. So we can practice dropping in to the body. So instead of thinking about the body or thinking about why I'm meditating or whether I should meditate or if this is the best place to learn to meditate, we just drop into the experience of knowing the body sitting, you know, knowing the sensations of the body. And then it gives us a contrast, like thinking about things, worrying about things, planning things, wondering, fantasizing, or an immediacy of, you know, knowing the body is like this, sitting is like this, breathing in is like this, hearing is like this a non-conceptual, so we're training the mind to be in the immediacy of the six sense gates, you know, the five physical senses, and thinking, but mental activity as mental activity, so we're not confused by the content of that activity. It's just, you know, just like we would notice if we were standing outside, we'd notice a breeze blowing. Well, there's that same sort of breeze going on in mind. There's that movement of mental activity, of thought and concept and emotion. But it, it can be just seen as the movement of mental activity, regardless of what the particular content is. So this is what we mean by being in the present moment. Thoughts are just thoughts, sensations are just sensations, sounds are just sounds, smells and tastes are just smells and tastes, sights are just sights. Now, so that's just the first movement. And it arises out of this intention like, oh, it's burdensome to be always thinking about things, wondering about things, fantasizing about things, anticipating, expecting, regretting. So the mind recognizes maybe the circular, the spinning nature of our thinking and just has the intention to drop it. See what that would be like. And I mentioned in the guided sit, like even willing to drop meaning. If right now I don't need to have meaning about who I am or what's happening. We think we are dependent on the meaning we have about our lives. But actually it's possible to live moment to moment without meaning or without the dependence on meaning. There may be you know, that habit of creating meaning might still be active in the mind, but we're not identifying with it. We're identifying, or in a sense, we're paying attention to the immediacy of the sense gates. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thoughts are just thoughts, things in and of themselves. So that's our initial movement. Once we settle, once we take a few breaths, that whole process of settling is that process of abandoning thinking or the identification with thinking 
and learning to be interested in the immediacy of experiencing. And then from that place, we've talked the last couple of weeks that we want this wholesome aspiration to arise out of that immediacy, that mindful presence. Like, oh, oh, maybe this heart, this mind, can be happy with things as they are. Like, maybe I don't need to think about how I could be happy. Because isn't it true that whenever the thought of being happy arises, we always imagine happiness out there somewhere. I'll be happy if. I'd be happier if this were true. So here the aspiration is radically different. Now the aspiration can possibly arise in our mind that maybe the mind, the heart, this life can be at ease, be peaceful with the way that it is, things as they are. Meaning it's not dependent on things being any particular way. That's a beautiful aspiration. Not to need things to be other than they are. Not to have to have a different life, a different world, <clears throat> a different body, different physical experience now. <clears throat> I'm not saying we can make this happen. I am saying, though, that this aspiration is accessible. Can you find that aspiration now? May this heart, this mind, be at ease with things as they actually are. May this heart or mind be peaceful, be content, be tranquil with things as they are. See, that, that aspiration is available to us. And that's a good place to begin. So the first step is just settling this intuition, this intention that it's okay now, for a while, it's safe to experiment with dropping meaning, dropping the addiction to thinking, worrying, planning, and come into the immediacy of the present moment. And there, finding this aspiration, oh, maybe this heart can really be free with things as they are. And then the training, the bulk of the meditation, the formal meditation practice, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, is actually training in this aspiration. So if we want to be free with things as they are, peaceful with the conditions as they are, regardless of how the conditions are then, that's what we practice. So, you know, in order to practice being free, we have to be connected with what we're going to be free with. So in order to realize freedom, freedom has to be realized in relationship to the way that it is. That's the only freedom that's relevant, right? The only freedom that really makes sense is a freedom that arises when we're connected. We want to be free with the life that's being lived with the mind, with the body, with things as they are. So that's what we practice. And if we use something, if somebody uses something like the breathing process, which is a classic meditation training, it's being free with this natural process of breathing. So in a sense, as a training mechanism, we take up some subset of experience, like breathing. 
but you could use hearing, you could use sitting, the experience of sitting, right? So there are many options what you might pick up as your training ground in your meditation practice. But let's just say you've, you've taken up breathing as your training ground. So you pick up the experience of breathing that what we're really doing is we're activating or practicing realizing the aspiration. So being intimate with breathing and free in the experience of breathing. So if the breath is rough and it feels tight and controlled, then what does freedom look like when the breath is like this? If the breath is very subtle and refined, what does freedom look like there? How to be free, how to allow the breath to be the way that it is, and to realize the peace of not needing the breath to be different than it is, not needing to have to judge the breath, not needing to have to doubt whether we're, the breath is right the way that it is. So the peace, the freedom, the release is that powerful experience of not needing things to be other than they are. In a way, you could say there are two kinds of happinesses we can strive for. One is the happiness of not needing things to be other than they are. And the other is the happiness of getting what we want. Now, the trouble with striving for the happiness that comes when we get what we want is we might not get it. And guaranteed, if we do get it, it's going to change, right? Because everything is changing. So it doesn't actually take much reflection to realize what a setup it is, always seeking happiness in getting something, becoming somebody. That's a setup. But it's totally appropriate to want to be happy. It's inappropriate to try to find it by getting something or becoming somebody because you may not get what you want, and even if you do get what you want, it won't last. Death will come, for example, <laughs> among many other changes. That's, that one's guaranteed. So the Buddha was teaching a happiness in the way things already are. It's a realization or an awakening to a happiness in a different relationship with the changing conditions of our lives. Now we relate to the conditions of our lives as if they're going to bring us to happiness. But we can practice, like with the breath, or with the body sitting, or with hearing, we can practice a happiness of not needing the breath, hearing, the body sitting to be other than it is. We're taking that particular aspect of experience, present moment experience, and we're practiced looking. Is there actually a happiness in not needing things to be other than they are? Not needing to add or subtract from this experience? Not needing to react or resist? But just being radically intimate and radically released. And so that's why in the particular technique that I shared tonight, you know, where you're breathing in, at least initially in your set, breathing in and remembering the possibility of being radically present with whatever your anchor is, whatever is predominant in that moment. We're, remember, we're using the indirect to remember to be radically present, to be undefended, to see, to know, oh, it's like this. And then with the exhalation, 
we're realizing that the heart, the mind doesn't need to do anything with that radical presence. It can just let it be. What a relief to be in life, to be fully connected, but not have to resist or react or get tight in any way. And people immediately think, well, that means you're not going to do anything. But it's just the opposite. We're really freeing up responsivity. Because there's no defensiveness. There's nothing stopping anything from happening. That's the point. That's why we use the word like releasing. Is It's a reminder that we don't need to make anything happen. And we don't need to stop anything from happening. Both. So that's what we're releasing. We're letting, we're trusting nature, inner, outer nature, to just do what it does. Inhaling, connecting, radically present, exhaling, allowing nature to be nature, allowing things to be the way that they are. So you see how important it is that the aspiration and the training are connected. Otherwise, we end up doing training, the, you know, the actual work we're doing in meditation. It might be coming out of something neurotic, like, I want to get enlightened. And so that idea is that this isn't it. It must be out there. And where is out there? What's some concept I'm having in my mind right now about enlightenment? And so I'm doing this very weird neurotic thing here in the moment, imagining something out there which is still here in the moment, but because the mind's deluded, I imagine being enlightened, being perfect, or being special is out there. I'm here. I want to be out there. So I'm doing something here to get out to this imaginary place I call happiness or enlightenment or whatever. It never works. It's always frustrating. It always makes the heart and mind more tight. The only thing that actually works is being interested in the happiness that's available now, in the peace that's available now, that's already available now. But you may doubt it. Well, there isn't any peace now. Well, the way we realize we open to peace now, freedom now, is in being intimate with what's arising. Don't feel like you need different conditions, you know, like i got to move those away in order to get to the peace now or the freedom now. The peace or the freedom now come from transforming your relationship with the conditions that are present. So even though we might use a, a particular experience like breathing or sitting or hearing, the fact is we actually have to work with what's ever predominant. If we can, like if there's some pain in the body, and we can let that fall into the background and bring the breath back into the foreground of attention, great, work with your breath. But if the pain is just what's dominant in one's experience, then we have to work with that. So then instead of uh, breathing in and knowing the breath, we're breathing in and we're knowing that particular physical pain or that particular emotional pain. We're breathing in and we're willing to be radically intimate. Oh yeah, it's like this now. This is being known. And then with the exhalation, we can remember not to need it to be other than what it is. Not to assume that happiness depends on this being other than what it is. 
you see, it's a it's a radical shift because mostly we're convinced that happiness comes when we control our experience. But we always end up getting frustrated. So what do we do? We try harder to control our experience, you know, to get rid of the frustration, for example. Instead of breathing and knowing the mind is frustrated, exhale, releasing any need to make it other than what it is, being really undefended, and realizing that that frustration doesn't belong to anybody. It isn't actually something that needs to be grasped in any way. That's what the exhalation is reminding us, that the mind doesn't need to grasp anything. And then the fourth step is just realizing that this whole process of connecting and releasing becomes, when there's momentum, the wisdom just takes over. And then we can even tease out the person who has to connect and the person who needs to release. And we're just noticing that the mind, the heart, is connecting, is releasing. That freedom is arising. Ease and peace is arising. And then the practice is simply to keep trusting the wisdom that's operating. Not doing the wisdom, but just trusting it. Doing becomes too gross at that point, And that has to be abandoned. Any kind of doing has to be abandoned. So I'm going to leave it here and see if there's some discussion or questions about meditation practice or how this might look in daily life or just some sharings from folks who have been practicing in this way and what were the roadblocks or what successes. Yeah, please say your names. Um, Christina. So Christina. can you expand a little bit on the end of when you're saying you need to be abandoned? Mm-hmm. I, I get a little bit frustrated because I struggle with motivation. And so then I think about, oh, I, I'm confused about like motivation and intention versus doing. Yeah. Doing is supposed to come out of motivation and intention. Well, it's a transformation that naturally happens, and we can't make it happen. So initially, <clears throat> when we drop into the present moment, and there and there is that natural rising, oh, maybe the heart can be at ease. Maybe a heart doesn't need things to be other than what's happening right now. Like like right now, we can just experiment with that. You know, as we drop in, and we have to drop in, drop the idea of being at common ground, listening to talk, and just drop in to the mind-body experience. And you can use a, a question, a reflection, to help open up the experience, like, can this be okay, this mind-body experience? You know, directly look. Can this be okay? Is contentment possible here and now? How do I know this moment isn't okay? How do I know the heart isn't already happy? And if some pain arises when you ask that question, then well, see if you can include that pain. Like, does that pain actually have to take away happiness? Maybe that can be included. So initially we get inspired from that kind of reflection to do this work. And it's volitional at this point. Like there is the intention, boy, this is interesting. I really want to stay connected to the present moment. I really want to explore the possibility of releasing any sort of neurotic sense, I got to go somewhere or become somebody. 
and really explore the possibility of peace or happiness here in the lived experience. So that's more like on this motivated, inspired, you know, we're energized to do the practice. But that sense of doing initially is unavoidable and very wholesome. But at some point, that sense of doing is too gross. Because the practice, the wisdom itself, has enough momentum. <clears throat> In the sense of you having to do it, we don't need to construct the sense of somebody who has the volition to connect and release. It's really about trusting the nature, that nature of wisdom itself, to continue to connect and to let go. So it's really different. How we practice depends on how dense the mind is, basically. When our mind is really dense, our practice is more dense. When, is, when the mind is very refined, more toward emptiness, uh, not sort of congealed around a sense of a self, then the practice has to be equally refined. And the fact is, there are moments, even as beginners, that we are over here. And if we try to practice as if we're over here, we're going to end up over here in a more dense place. But if we can really learn to trust, then those moments when there is a more natural freedom, a more natural ease, and life experience opens up in a beautiful way, it will last a little longer because we're learning the art of trusting, letting things be, not the art of being the practitioner motivated to be a good practitioner. Thanks for bringing that up, Christine. Other thoughts come to mind? Experiences from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? Questions? Yeah. Stefan, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, kind of how we've talked over the past few weeks about happiness not needing to come from being this, reaching a goal or having something or um, uh, just being okay with with things being as they are, but sometimes in your life you want to, you do want to move towards things, like you want better relationships with certain people, or you want to eliminate unhealthy things in your life, or you want to do better at work, or those kinds of things. Um, can you talk a little bit about yeah. the, kind of how you reconcile those two points of view? Yeah, well, <clears throat> remember, Initially, as I was just saying to Christina's comment, initially we are very much in the world that you described where we want things to be better. Always thinking about things hasn't, been, hasn't really worked for me. So I'm really, really personally going to commit to dropping into the present moment, being immediate, and learning to trust the natural unfolding of experience. Right? So that's no different than, you know, oh, I really see that my... My relationship with my wife or my partner isn't working. You know, I'm really motivated to look deeply, really motivated to creatively and honestly communicating with her and you know, trying to fix the relationship. So initially the practice is very much on that relative level. And so that relative level is totally appropriate. But we want it to we just want to do it with more wisdom. So you know, if you're motivated, like, let's say you're inspired to, to be more functional at work, to be more competent at work, you're just tired of feeling like you're 
you know, one hair breath away from being fired or something like that. And uh, she really motivated. But, you know, we want to, we really want to understand, like, if, if we're motivated and we want to do that skillfully, we have to make peace with the vulnerability we have at work. So the first thing we need to do is breathe, in a sense, you know, this is just the technique, you know, breathe in knowing that we feel vulnerable and it's like this. Willing to be intimate with that experience and willing to deeply accept it because it's already this way. So I'm not <clears throat> depending on it being other than what it is because that would be a rejection of life as it actually is. Right now, there is this vulnerability and I'm going to release the need for it to be other than it is. That really frees me up to be more in the moment, more awake, and more creative and responsive to how I'm going to, you know, make choices around my work life. So that the interesting thing is, this practice will free you up, free the personality up, we could say, to do what needs to be done in life, to fix what needs to be fixed to leave alone what needs to be left alone, to appreciate what's already working well, this practice will really help. It doesn't actually freeze us up or, or uh, make us complacent or resigned to, you know, that things are never going to change. This comes to mind, anything? <clears throat> Questions about your sitting practice. It's a good time to bring it up, and they're often useful for other people too. Yeah, Craig, and then Jerry. Um, the type of practice you've just been describing and answering questions, uh, does that take a while? Like, uh, is that just well, I, <clears throat> so Craig was asking, does the practice take a long time to develop? Well, I think all styles take a long time, but it, what takes a long time is the, uh, the perfection of the practice or the getting to the place where we're not falling back into dense states. I think very early on, people have moments of real freedom. But we, the tendency is to fall regularly back into more contracted states, contracted ways of being with experience. The mind is tight or grasping or in a conflictual relationship with the conditions that are coming and going in our lives. So my sense of it is more like, uh, you know, percentage of time. You know, in the, the beginning, we're mostly just here every once in a while experiencing moments when the mind is able to be present and in a non-conflictual relationship with what it's present with. And so things are just, nature is just happening. Thoughts are coming and going, sounds are coming and going, sights are coming and going. The personality is just responding nimbly, naturally. And, there, and the result is there's a sense, this is okay. And, and a deep trust in life. Has anybody not experienced at least moments of feeling that deep trust that it's okay, that life is okay? 
probably all of us, you might not remember it right now, but I'm guessing all of us have had many of these moments over here. Now, just imagine like having more and more of those moments. Like maybe every day there's a couple of those moments where there's a deep, pervasive, direct, intuitive sense. It's okay. And, and in part of that moment of freedom, when the mind is realizing, intuiting that it's okay, part of that intuition is, and even when it doesn't seem okay, it's actually okay. So like even when I fall back into the dense state, it's even okay there too. That's part of what comes from more regular experiences over here. So that's kind of how I see it. You know, I've been practicing pretty regularly for 30 years, almost 30 years now, and, you know, it's not like uh, the majority of my time is over here, but it's a, it's a common experience now to feel really free. And I'm really grateful about those moments. And it makes all of this dense stuff when there is fear and the mind is to some degree believing it and there is greed and lust and the mind is to some degree is identified with those contracted states. But you know, in a funny way they become more porous. It's like it still looks like fear, but it doesn't have the same weight. It's not as dense. The experiences of fear and greed and delusion. They're just not as dense. Even though it has the appearance of being the same state I had when I was a teenager or whatever. So that's how I experience it. And then, you know, and then when I want more of this, I realize, oh, that's a dense state, you know, when I want to rush it. Or when I feel a little bit betrayed because my heart is dense, my mind is tight. And I, I remember I have this sort of deep imprint, intuitive imprint, that it's really okay. And it's easy to feel betrayed by the heaviness. But I, but I you know, so that I can practice with that more, like being patient when things are heavy and dense, when life actually feels like a problem, you know. And just appreciating that very thin thread that Maybe not so. You know, maybe it isn't as heavy as it appears to be. Isn't as dense. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Terry, did you have a thought? <laughs> Doubt is one of the most seductive thoughts. And it's really about two worlds because from a particular point of view, a particular world view, that thought is very convincing. That doubt is very convincing. You know, in the from the world of a person doing things to be happy, it's appropriate for a strong doubt to arise. Because it's counterintuitive that I don't have to strive to be happy. And it's also counterintuitive from that world that this is okay. Because from this world, the whole point is it's not okay. That's why I'm striving to be happy, right? So that's like the evidence on the ground. Like I am convinced this is not it. 
this is not happiness. You know, if this is happiness, I'm not that interested in it. Because we can imagine being more happy. You know, if I were younger or healthier or smarter or more successful or more beautiful or wiser or more spiritual or, you know, name it, you name it, then. So it seems so appropriate to feel like we have to strive to become somebody or to get rid of something or to have something. It just makes so much sense from this deluded, what the Buddha would call a deluded point of view, which is the self-view. You know, where there's a self, and it's all about adorning the self with attributes. That's how we get happiness. So if the self has more intelligence, more power, more beauty, more lovers, more this, more that, then we'll be happy. So when that doubt arises, there's two things we can do. What One you mentioned, which is to recognize it's just a thought. That's a deeper practice, and that will either work or it won't. It just depends on how much wisdom is present, how much clarity is present in the mind. It takes a pretty, uh, a pretty strong degree of wisdom for that to work, to recognize in that moment of strong doubt, that's just a thought. That's actually true, but it's only true when the mind can see that it's just a thought. You know, If we say it's just a thought hoping <laughs> that it will go away, the pain will go away, you know, that's called aversion. It's like we're using something that looks like wisdom, but it's actually in a subtle way, or not so subtle way, an attack. Like I'm going to attack this doubt with this so-called meditation move. You're just a thought. <laughs> so what instead can, can work with that doubt, that strong doubt, is to be interested in the poignancy of the pain. So basically what we're doing is we're uncovering the mind, the heart, that's not afraid to be hurt. So instead of feeling like, oh, I should be hurt because it's just a thought, it's like, okay, you know, I felt hurt before. I felt doubt before. I felt the paralyzing numbness of doubt, like not knowing which way to turn. You mean I've wasted all those hours on the cushion. <laughs> you know, and that would feel like this, you know, having wasted all that time. That would feel like this. Can that be okay? Like can I really can the heart open to that feeling of being betrayed by my practice, having wasted my time? And what that does is it, loose, it begins to loosen it up because what makes the doubt unbearable is when that initial wave of pain, when that doubt is arising, it's like the thought that I can't bear it. So then we immediately have to run somewhere. Either we have to run to the idea, no, the Buddha's right. So we're, you know, making it basically raising our voice to be louder than the doubt trying to suppress it with a loud voice. No, the Buddha's right. I know. You know, and we see this a lot in religious circles where there's a, a lot of yelling because it seems to help people believe what they think they should believe. You know, if I scream it louder, if I convince more people, then it must be true. Because why else would I be screaming it that it is true, you know? And so that's, that's the tendency, and of course that's really stressful. And the other, you know, in face of the pain, the other is to shrink, to feel defeated. 
you know, and to want to disappear, to go drink, or any sort of distraction, even though we know that it's not helpful, we'll pick it up because uh, we just can't bear to be with the pain. So it's actually quite a powerful move to say yes to the pain of the doubt. And even if it throws us around a little bit, like we're not really willing, able to be relaxed with it, and we do react, we do shrink a little, we do fight back a little, but just to be in the vicinity of relaxing with it, opening to it, trusting it, it is the way that it is now. There is this pain of doubt. And it's basically a slower way to get at that first move that you talked about, which is just seeing that it's a thought. But we have to do it in, in parts. It's like the way we realize it's just a mind state is first we have to make peace with the, the pain so we're not resisting it anymore. And then we can really see that the thought is just a thought. We can see it all fall apart. We'll see that eventually that it comes and goes. How many times have we been struck by real doubt and then it goes? It's not here anymore. Those of you in, you know, intimate relationships, partnerships, marriages, and I'm sure you've had moments when, what am I doing? What have I done? <laughs> or jobs, right? You're in the job career you've committed so many years to, and the thought, what am I doing? Or whatever, whatever it might be, living in Minnesota. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> but, you know, and then in an hour or two days, it's not a problem. So we have to keep going through the whole cycle. And the way we do that is to do it consciously, like to really feel crushed by the pain of the doubt. And to realize that actually, although it in a sense crushes us, it doesn't actually destroy us to feel the weight or the pain of that doubt. We're like Gumby, you know, or we get squashed and we just kind of come back. <laughs> Maybe I'm dating myself. <laughs> How many people don't know what Gumby is? <laughs> Anybody else have a thought? Yeah. Say any? Jim. Jim. My practice, my daily practice has taken on a very uh, uh, definite pattern in the past couple of months. Five, five or seven days of very hard struggling sits. And then uh, a sit with a lot of joy. It's a very definite pattern. On the surface of it, it might look like I'm being patient and I'm getting a reward, but I think it's more that if I don't identify with the joy, I don't have to identify with the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems like a really wise attitude. So Joe was saying that he. Uh, general pattern has been several days of a lot of struggle and then a day of a sit with a lot of joy. And this is really important to understand. Basically we're having the same attitude to the painful sits as we are to the really joyful, light, beautiful sits. And now this is an amazing thing to reflect on, that the value of the sit has nothing to do with how pleasant it is. Right? Because actually we're practicing the same thing, both when the sit is really pleasant and, and wholesome and light, as we are when the sit is really heavy 
and dense with sort of negative patterns like aversion or doubt or greed, wanting things to be other than they are. Because the practice is being intimate and letting things be, not needing things to be other than they are. Or would Bob, is that what you said? Your name is? Jim. Jim, sorry, Jim. What, yeah, what Jim said is like being patient. That was sort of what he said at the end of his reflection was that maybe what he's learning is that being patient leads to joy and leads to more space when it's not joyful. You know, the patience and that insight that all we have to do is keep showing up. It's really enlightening. It, it lightens up everything. Because then we don't get doubt when things are really painful. And you know, speaking from personal experience, and I was just talking with Judy, who's somewhere today. <laughs> so Judy and I share this. I, I'm assuming it's okay to, you know, but sometimes practice is difficult for a while. And it can be a real slog for a long time, years, definitely months, and for sure, weeks. You know, where every set, even when we're really regular, even when our intention is good, but the actual the, um, flavor of the set is unpleasant. Even though we're doing everything right, it can be unpleasant for a while. And it can seem so appropriate that I must be doing something wrong. And we should look, it's appropriate to look, and then we say, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have sincerity, I have this aspiration to be at ease with things as they are, I'm practicing connecting, I'm practicing releasing, relaxing. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's just unpleasant. That's how it is. And one of the things we can look for is how the nobility of being steady and patient with what's unpleasant is a beautiful thing. It sounds ironic, but you know how that is. Like when we're really being steady with something that's difficult to bear, hard to bear, it's beautiful. It's ennobling. It's enlightening. So we want to be on the lookout that even when the experience is very unpleasant, it doesn't mean that there isn't insight developing and that there aren't beautiful things um, arising. But it's unpleasant. It's arising in the, in the context of experience being unpleasant. Thanks, Jim, for sharing that. Yeah, Uttara. Uh, what is the definition of enlightenment? Well, the cessation of greed, aversion, and delusion in the mind is the, the definition the Buddha used most often. So we're talking about the habits of grasping ceasing. So we can have moments of awakening in those moments when the mind, uh, the activity of greed and aversion and delusion being disconnected have ceased temporarily then we have a temporary moment of liberation. And even with concentration practice, when we suppress the habit of greed and aversion enough that it's really retreated from the mind, then deeper states of concentration have the flavor of liberation because the mind in those moments isn't being afflicted by greed and aversion. It's just that they're gonna come back because they haven't been uprooted. The tendency is still there to be fearful, to be greedy, to be aversive, to be disconnected. But in this moment, it's not there. And that's what I was saying, that we can have moments of awakening without being fully awakened. And so the awakening process is first to realize these moments, realize what these moments of 
of freedom are. Like, realize there's no greed and aversion, no disconnection in the mind right now. And then cultivating a path, beautiful path, that leads to the complete cessation of greed and aversion and delusion in the mind. Yeah, so I find that's the best way to think about it. And the word enlightenment is sort of generally not a useful translation, even though it's very common, even in Buddhism. I prefer the word awakening, but even that has problems. Um, the Buddha most often used cessation, you know, nirvana or nibbana, the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion to talk about it. But there is the word vimuti, which means awakening or enlightenment. Time for a couple more thoughts. Here, Barbara. Um, I think it's a very natural process from someone who's a thinker of experience. Um, you know, I get very tied up with the idea of the mind trying to fix the mind. Yeah. And that becomes very difficult. Very difficult to maneuver through? Yeah. And so the only way I can do it really is that I have to drop this person and, and to not try and think about this too much. Yeah. Sometimes I think words really get in the way. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I really identify with but this is negated in some of the other things that we said is that um, when I can see um, the relationship to pain to thought Yeah, but that probably came from thinking about it a lot and directly seeing how it leads to pain. You know? Yeah. And so every time we do end up thinking in an unproductive way, we can learn a, a, a very powerful lesson, which is this is unproductive. This isn't helping. That's not a small lesson. And a lot of our lessons are really hard won like that, those kinds of lessons. Like how many times we have to spin in a particular way before we realize how unproductive that spinning is. There's a lot about patience in the process. And the thing is that um, the truth is that not wanting this process to take as long as it's going to take doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing is not engaging, like not like you were saying, Barbara, not dropping with the willingness to drop. Like, it feels like all I know how to do is think about my problems. You know, and it's like I want to think about, I want to complain that thinking doesn't work. You know, and it's so obviously wrong to think that way. But yet we want to think about how thinking doesn't work. So this is the powerful corner that we have to turn. And this is where this skillful means of thinking about things in this uh, vast way many lifetimes, you know, this is common in Buddhism, to think about 
not just one lifetime, but many, many, many lifetimes. And I'm not saying you should think about that as an absolute, but just open your mind to it because it's a skillful means. Because when you really see life in those vast terms, and you get the sense of how long we might have been doing this, and how long maybe we will be doing this in the future, that we all of a sudden this powerful motivation can arise this is the right time to turn the corner, not to continue doing what's been done and getting what's been gotten, you know, but to do something different. And that's where that motivation comes by, just to drop, just to make things simple. And that's the first movement in practice. It really comes from this spiritual, this wholesome spiritual exhaustion where we have some intuitive sense that more thinking is not the answer. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that more thinking isn't. So I'm going to do something other than think. I don't care what it is, so I'm just going to drop into the experience of the body. I'm just going to feel the next breath coming and going. There's some powerful intelligence in that. We don't know what we're doing, but we know what, we're, we know what doesn't work. And that's not a small thing. That's huge. Probably a good time, place to leave things. So let's, we have a few seconds to let go of the words and take a breath or two together. We can let our heart and mind <coughs> drop in, even if it means dropping into confusion or dropping into unpleasant sensations. Realizing the simplicity of things as they are. Noticing any peacefulness here in this simplicity. Feeling inspired to be creative and reflect and practice in ways that support real happiness and peace in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. Thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. Thanks to Kevin, our program host, and the folks, Jerry and Julian and others, who helped us set up tonight. Great. Thanks for coming, everyone.